So thank you, Pastor Dave and the team. As you notice, it's a little bit smaller this morning, but uh, sometimes it's just great to worship that, that way, just a little simpler. Dave's had a very busy week. Uh, the, the, the show Willy Wonka is going on, and uh, if you haven't been there, I highly encourage you to show up um, today, 2 o'clock, I think it is. Um, lots of people from FBC and the community involved in this show. It's just a great time. I'm not a, I'm not, I've watched both Willy Wonka movies, can't stand them. So, so I was not looking forward to this show, but it was well done, and it was engaging, and it was fun. I had my, uh, um, I have my whole family. We had all the kids home yesterday. It was great. Dylan and Tears that drove up from Fort Wayne. She's a nurse. She got out of work at 7 on Friday night. Drove up Friday night. Um, we hung out, all, hung out all day yesterday. They went to the show with us. So this morning... They have to be back in Fort Wayne, Indiana by 10.15. The church they go to has two services, and uh, they, they teach third and fourth grade during the second service. So they, they left home <coughs> at 5.45 this morning. It's time change Sunday, so that would have been, what, 4.45. Um, they got down to about Russell Road, and he said, it is awful. Pulled off at a gas station. They got to Nunica, and they said, We're, by then they were already late for their service. I mean, time-wise. So they snuck down Nunica 231 and went to visit Grandpa and Grandma in Zealand. So it was, it was great. So I say all that to say thank you for being here this morning with these nasty roads. Pastor Foley sent me a little um, gif or meme yesterday, and he said, we need to start calling these Sundays after the time change Pajama and Pop-Tart Sundays. So, <laughs> so next, uh, next year when the time changes, we'll be handing out maybe Pop-Tarts at the door. Then there'll be no excuse not to be here, and Jamma's will be allowed but whatever you wore this morning whatever you're here we're, we're glad that you're here pastor dave um, mentioned a uh, um, hard week for some death and uh, hardships and health i wanted to just pass along that caleb merton uh, merkin i mean and his wife emily caleb lost his dad yesterday he was 60 years old um, they've been battling just short-term um, stage four bile duct cancer and uh, told him just about a week ago he had maybe a maybe three months, and then they dropped it down and said in the next couple weeks, and he passed yesterday already. So Caleb and Emily have been grace people for a long time. They got married about a year and a half ago, live up in uh, Scottville, looking to move to Hart. They actually have a lead on a place, and uh, just pray for them over the next uh, weeks as they move forward. And, and on top of that, Emily lost her best friend uh, about, uh, about a month ago. So it's just been a, it's been a tough, tough season for them. But our only hope in life and, de and death is what? Jesus Christ. Our hope springs eternal. So we're going back um, to uh, Genesis chapter 6. I'm on this week. Pastor Stuckey will be on uh, next week. And so we're, we're in Genesis 16. So take your Bibles, turn there, and we need to go back to that chapter. We're not going to spend much time there. But I have, I have five kind of words or phrases that we have for this morning. So we've been going through this series, Patriarchs and Matriarchs, Walking the Way of Faith. Walking the Way of Faith, because we're all on a faith journey. And whatever that journey you're on, I'm glad you're here but, but the words I have for this morning are piercing question, covenant marker, sloth, that'll be a fun one, laughter, even more funny, and nothing is impossible with God. So repeat them with me. Piercing question, covenant marker, sloth, laughter, and nothing is impossible with God. So let me pray before we open up God's word. So Father, we're going to look at a pretty lengthy um, passage this morning 
And I think out of that passage, there's so many truths that you can teach us. But these five things, Father, I pray that they can take away this morning. So as I teach, as we read your word, may it penetrate hearts and lives and minds. And may the words that I share, Father, may they be your words. May the words that come out of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing to you, Father, because you are my rock and my redeemer. And I say thank you. Thank you for our hope and life and death, and as we walk through life on this faith journey that you have called us to. In your name we pray, amen. So last week, I introduced you to Hagar, who was Sarai's servant. Now Sarai and Abram are longing to have a child, and they're in barrenness, and we've been talking about that over and over and over. So they come up with their own game plan, and they, and they, they take Hagar, and Abram and her have a sexual encounter, and she becomes pregnant. And she flees because Sarai is treating her harshly, with contempt. And I'm like, what do you expect is going to happen? But she leaves, and she flees out into the wilderness. And she's underneath the tree, it says. She's alone. She's violated. She's pregnant. And then the angel of the Lord shows up. And ask her a very piercing question. A question that we didn't look at last week, but we need to come back to today. Because it's a very important question, not only for Hagar, but for us as well. And we see it in Genesis 16, verse 8. This simple question. Genesis 16, verse 8. Where the angel asks her, where did you come from and where are you going? Where did you come from and where are you going? Now, this is not a question of location because God knows and God sees and God hears and he knows where she's at. It's a question which acts more of a statement of surprise. It's more like, why aren't you where I expected you to be? What's happening in your life? Kind of intro perspective, making her think about it. In regard to your personal faith walk, I want to ask you that same question this morning. Where have you come from, and where are you going? What's God asking you to do? It's, it's a piercing question because God knows you, he sees you, he hears you. He knows the journey that you've been on. Just as he heard and he saw Hagar in the wilderness. So how do you answer that question? Hagar responds this way in verse 8b. And she answers, and, and I'm blown away with this, with just complete honesty. She knew she had to be talking to someone. She's not hiding. She doesn't have any walls up. She says, I'm running away from my mistress Sarai, she replied. Just lays it right out there. She's saying, I can't handle this. Life's been hard. It's been painful. I don't like what's happened. She just bears it out before God. And then watch how the angel of the Lord responds in, in, in verse 9 and verse 10. Return to your mistress and submit to her authority. Then he, ended, then he added, I will give you more descendants than you can count. Despite the pain, Hagar, despite what you've gone through, I'm asking you to go back to your mistress. I'm asking you to do something that's hard. 
I'm asking you to take that next step of faith. God didn't remove the ill treatment, didn't remove the, the, the past of what she's walked through. He's just saying, here's what's next. And even though she wanted to run away, even though she didn't want to go back there, she turns around and she returned to her mistress Sarai. That's faith. Hagar walked by faith. God will always tell you what to do. Sometimes we might have to wait and figure it out, but he will give you that next step. Like I was talking to Paul this week. When there's a command, when God speaks, there's a command. And how do we respond? Where are you going? Where did you come from? Where are you going? But please hear me. I'm not telling you to stay in or move back to a hurtful situation. I'm just asking you to ask yourself this question. Where did you come from? Where are you going? And then answer it honestly. That the God who sees and the God who hears, he knows what you're going through, that he will lead you as you walk in this thing called faith. So piercing question. Second word for this morning or phrase Covenant markers. Say it with me. Covenant markers. Not like the markers you draw with, but markers as you're going on a trip or as I'm walking in with my deer hunt in, in, the, in the spring. I've got little, or in the fall, I've got little tags in the tree so I can follow. So markers along a journey. So we got a review from last week. We went back to chapter 16. We looked at that question, and we ended in the first three verses of chapter 17 last week. So I want to review a little bit what I said so that we can catch up on where we're going to head. So Genesis 17 begins when Ishmael, who is Hagar's child, she goes back, she has her child. Now he's 13 years old. And his name means God hears. Because God heard them in their barrenness. God heard um, Hagar crying out in the wilderness. God hears. Significance for them and so much significance for us. And hopefully through this series so far, you've understood that and grasped that. But as far as we know, God hasn't really spoken to Abram and Sarai in, 13, in those 13 years. And as they raise Ishmael, I think they're becoming more and more convinced that what they did with the servant Hagar was maybe what God wanted them to do. That they were, they were helping God out to figure out the plan and to help them move through barrenness. And then in verse, and then in verse 1 of chapter 17, and this is what it says. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am El Shaddai. God Almighty, serve me faithfully and live a blameless life. Verse 2, I will make a covenant with you by which I will guarantee to give you countless descendants. He comes up to Abram and he says, even though you've done this, I'm still keeping my promises. I am El Shaddai. This is another name of God. I briefly introduced it last week. We don't have time to go into a big study of it. But it basically means El, God. I am God Almighty. And only seven times in scriptures we see this name. And every reference of El Shaddai paints this picture of a God who keeps his promise. That my God will do what he says he will do. My God, when, when he says it will do something, it will come to pass. 
And he's reminding Abram of that. God does, and then he doesn't just remind Abram. He, he also doesn't reprimand Abram for having this child with Hagar. Now, God didn't like it. It wasn't God's plan. But he just comes to, he just comes to Abram, and look what he says next. In the next, in the next, the next part, he says, okay, oops, sorry, can I have the next slide, please? He, he says, serve me faithfully and live a blameless life. So he says, I'm going to keep my promise. Abraham, or Abram, I want you, your role is to serve me blamelessly and live a faithful life. And Abraham is like, whack, right across the head with a two-by-four saying, oh, what I did was not right. I didn't follow in faith what God was asking me to do. And sometimes God's got to do that for me as well. Well, I'm on this faith journey, and I make, a, I make a decision that maybe is not what God wants me to do. I'm not living faithfully or a blameless life. And it's like, whack, ooh, that hurt God. But he gets my attention, right? What does God have to do to get your attention? What's he brought you through? What's he teaching you? I'd love to hear what Abram had to say and, and, and talk to him sometime about that. But then, look, we know he gets the message because it says in the very next verse, at this time, Abram fell face down on the ground. That's a posture of worship, a posture of humility. It's a posture of like, oh, God, he understood it. Then we see verse 4 through 8. And God reminds Abram about the covenant he made with him. And when he called them on the pilgrimage of faith, he just kind of outlines it again. This is, this is what I'm going to do, Abram. These are the promises I'm going to keep. And then, as we move through this chapter, we see three kind of covenant markers. Three pieces of evidence that God will do what he says. And he lets Abram and Sarah know that. So the first thing he does is he changes Abram and he changes Sarai's name. For, for, for Abram to Abraham, we see that in verse, verse 5. What's more, I'm changing your name. I will no longer be Abram. It will be no longer be Abram. Instead, you will be called Abraham, for you will be the father of many nations. And we see Sarai to Sarah, verse 15 and 16. Then God said to Abraham, regarding Sarai, your wife, her name will no longer be Sarai. From now on, her name will be Sarah. I will bless her and give you a son from her. Yes, I will bless her richly, and she will become the mother of many nations. So God changes their names as a reminder that I am El, I, I, I am, um, El Shaddai. I'm going to keep my promise. Just watch your name. This is a promise. But then he gives them a second marker as well in this passage. And with this one, there's good news. And there's bad news involved. Good news. You're part of an everlasting covenant, Abraham. Bad news. There's circumcision involved. God tells Abram to gather all the men and that they're going to have to be circumcised. And that included Ishmael. And that's interesting. He's part of that. He's part of that. But every generation of Abraham's descendants, which are the Israelites, after that, every male must be circumcised on the eighth day after their birth. Verse 13a says, all must be circumcised. Why? 13b, your bodies will bear the mark 
of my everlasting covenant. So there's bleeding. There's a mark that reminds them that they are part of this covenant that God is making. That their lives are set apart. That they're not invincible. That they're part of something bigger than they are. They have a new identity. And that they truly are the people of God. Thankfully, we're not under that system anymore. Take your Bibles and turn to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. We still have a mark. We're still sealed. But we don't have to go through circumcision anymore to, to have that marker there. We're, sir, we're, we're sealed by the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 1, 12 through 14. Listen to this. God's purpose was that we Jews who were the first to trust in Christ would bring praise and glory to God. So that's Abraham and all his descendants. And now you Gentiles, that's us, the rest of the world, uh, have also heard the truth, the good, good news that God saves you. That God does what? Saves you. And when you believed, circle that, highlight that, in Christ, he identified you as his own by giving you the what? Holy Spirit, whom he promised long ago. The Spirit is God's guarantee that he will give us the inheritance he promised and that he has purchased us to be his own people. He did this so we would praise and glorify him. We are sealed as a reminder of the promises that God has made and God is going to keep. Another covenant marker along the way. So then after hearing this, back to our story in Abra about Abraham, after hearing this and being reminded that God is a promise-keeping God and he's going to keep it, listen to how he responds in verse 17. Listen to what he says. Then Abraham bowed down to the ground, but he, what did he do? Laughed to himself in disbelief. How could I become a father at age 100, he thought. And how can Sarah have, a, Sarah have a baby when she's 90 years old? He laughed in disbelief. And we're going to come back to that in a few moments. He, he, he just didn't get it. And, and, and again, he goes back to Ishmael. He says, God, don't you see this child? And God takes it, and he's about to flip the script. Verse 18. So Abraham said to God, May Ishmael live under your special blessings. So he's asking God, don't you see Ishmael? We have a promised child. I wish you could see Ishmael, God. And God is like, are you really going to talk to me about seeing? I see him. I will bless him. But he's not the promise. Verse 20 and 21, look what God does. As for Ishmael, I will bless him just like you asked. I will make him extremely fruitful and multiply his descendants. He will become the father of 12 princes, and I will make him a great nation. But my what? My covenant will be confirmed with who? Isaac, who will be born to you and Sarah about this time next year. So the third covenant marker is they, is they have a name. God introduces them to Isaac. Say, he's coming, and this is what you are to name him. Their promise is getting so close to fulfillment, becoming more and more clear. And the life God had in mind for Abram and Sarah to take them out of barrenness did not come through Ishmael. It came through who? 
Isaac. And as I thought about this week, I think we have an Ishmael and an Isaac inside of us. Each one of us do. Isaac represents the way of faith, who, who God is calling us to be. That true and authentic identity that God wants us to live out of. The life of faithfulness and love and sharing and grace and humility. It takes waiting and trusting in the promises of God, no matter how long it takes, because God will fulfill his promise. God has no timeline. It takes risks. It takes vulnerability. It takes getting back up and taking one step after another step. A willingness to walk in faith. That's kind of the Isaac trajectory. And then there's the Ishmael trajectory. Choosing our own way. I'm guilty of that. Setting up my own life. Ignoring the trust that is required by God. This way, the Ishmael is quicker. It's easier sometimes, at least in the moment. And, you're, and, and I'm much more in control. And, and faith, not much of a requirement. That's the Ishmael trajectory. So every day we get to choose which one will be born in us. We get to choose which promise will we pursue. Will it be Isaac or will it be Ishmael? Which one is it for you? That's one thing I've been learning about the faith journey. Every decision we make, you have to either choose the Isaac trajectory or the Ishmael trajectory. Which one is it for you? So that moves on to our third word, sloth. In chapter 18, so we're finally to our passage that we're supposed to be in today. Stacy went really long last week. <laughs> no, it was me. But thank you, Stacy, for sharing. I was waiting that I got home from the show. I'm like, do you want to say anything today at 1030? She said no. <laughs> There's a powerful image in this first verse in chapter 18. But you have to read it really close or, or you're going to miss it. So chapter 18, verse 1. The Lord appeared again to Abraham. I'm going to stop right there. Because sometimes there's confusion here. Before we move on, I want to clarify who appeared to Abram. In, in the next verse, we're going to see that there's three men that were standing there in front of the tent that showed up. And some have suggested that all three of these men were angelic beings that the Lord had sent. However, it is clear that it is the Lord. It's Yahweh. It's God himself who appeared to Isaac. I mean, to Abraham. It's the Lord who speaks throughout the rest of this chapter. The Lord took on human form and spoke to Abraham. And Abraham, Abraham could recognize him because it's happened over and over in this chapter. In, verse 12, in chapter 12, we, we, when God calls him, it's the Lord. In chapter 13, when Abraham and Lot part ways, it's the Lord. And in 15, when he makes the covenant, it's the Lord. In 17, when he reinstates the covenant, it's the Lord. So Abram is meeting face-to-face -face with the Lord in human form. So then as we read the rest of this verse, it says this. The Lord, Yahweh, I am, appeared again to Abram near the oak grove belonging to Mamar. One day, Abraham was sitting at the entrance to his tent during the hottest part of the day. I'm going to stop right there. Because as I read that over and over this week, I think the author is up to something bigger here. I think God wants to have a, a bigger emphasis here. 
It's not just a time stamp on Abram's day. It's just not letting us know what Abraham is, Abraham is doing during the day. Now, he could have been sitting there because it was really hot and he had shade underneath that tent. That's very possible, probably one of the reasons. Or he could have been there, I think, because there's something heavier going on in his soul. Something in his life. And it reminded me of the word sloth. So, so what is a sloth? When I think of a sloth, it reminds me of a few things. First, some people I know. Second, a movie. Which movie? Zootopia. I had to watch it a few times this week, or a couple of clips. Or the third thing it kind of reminded me of was the seven deadly sins. I'll get there in a minute, but Pastor Dave said this morning, this whole uh, show, um, Willy Wonka, when, when the director, Ronald Dahls, was writing it, it was kind of in a response to the seven deadly sins. So it's just kind of an interesting tie-in there. But in the 4th century, there was a monk named Evagorius Ponticus. And, and, and he began to identify a list of sins or struggles that all of us have in common. Can anyone name all seven? Anybody got it? Okay, greed, sloth. Gluttony, okay, wrath, envy, lust, one more, pride, opposite of what Abby, Abby was talking about today. So those seven things, can I have the next slide please? Now, can you tell me what Bible verse they're from? I always thought there was a verse, there's not. When I was younger, I'm like, where's the verse with the seven sins? Not there. There's not a verse that lists them all out. All of them are included in the scriptures. But one of those sins of sloth is kind of hard to define. But there's a simple definition of sloth, which is laziness. Laziness. And the Bible has a lot to say about it. Proverbs 13, 4 says, Lazy people want much but get little. But those who work hard will what? Prosper. But there's so much more to this word. It is made up of two very powerful kind of uh, uh, dynamics, emotional dynamics. One is the Latin word called tristatia, which means deep sadness. And the other one is a Latin word called asadia, which means kind of this indifference. It's a deep sense that I don't care much at all. You ever have the bad case of I don't cares? I've been there before. It's just too heavy, so sad, so depressed, so indifferent. In fact, when the monk wrote about these, the sloth as being a deadly sin, he would say it's a powerful force that would come in the middle of the day, and he would call it the noonday demons. And listen to what he said in his journal. Asadia makes it like the sun hardly moves, if at all, and the day is 50 hours long. Then it constrains the monk to long constantly out the windows, to walk outside the, of the cell, to gaze carefully at the sun, to determine how far it stands from the ninth hour. And do you know what the ninth hour is in the monastic calendar? Lunch. And we all know what the noonday demon feels like. 
at times. You're in your office, you're on your tr tractor, you're, you're a student sitting at your desk, and, and you're watching the clock, and it kind of feels like it's not moving, or it might be moving backwards, and it's just this, just, just this waiting, this, ah. Uh. Author Kathleen Norris talks about Asadia as a strong, powerful um, force in our lives. She went through some deep darkness in her life. Her husband was an alcoholic, and he was abusive. And in her book called Asadia and Me, this is what she said about the power of this. Asadia's genius is to seize us precisely where our hope lies, to attack our hope, to tear away what, what, who we are and mock that which sustains us. I think Abraham is sitting there at the front of his tent, and he has a touch of slothfulness. Yes, it's hot. Yes, it's the heat of the day. Don't want to do anything at noon. But it's more than just that. It's the fatigue that you get at the end of life. It's the fatigue that you get as you wait for something to develop. I've been waiting for this promise and waiting for this promise and waiting and waiting. And oh, I just can't handle it anymore. And I think that's what he's doing sitting here. And what's Sarah doing? Sarah doing? She's working in the tent. And he's thinking about his life. Oh, God, what about this promise? You promised me a child. And it just weighs on his heart. And for you and I to grasp what happens next in this passage, we have to understand the heaviness that, that, that Abraham is dealing with. Look at verse 2. He looked up and noticed three men standing nearby. When he saw them, he ran to meet them and welcomed them, bowing to the ground. My Lord, he said, if it pleases you, stop here for a while. Rest in the shade of this tree while water is brought to wash your feet. And since you've honored your servant with this visit, let me prepare some food to refresh you before you continue on your journey. All right, they said, do as you have said. There's activity now. Slothfulness leaves him. He's moving, he's, he's serving, he's having his people around him serve. And just a few yards away, Sarah is working hard in the tent. And the men show up, and they begin to eat, and then they have a conversation. Verse 9, to the end of the, to verse 15, the middle of the chapter. And this is the conversation. Where is Sarah, your wife? The visitors asked. She's inside the tent, Abraham replied. Then one of them said, I will return to you about this time next year, and your wife Sarah will have a son. Sarah was listening to this conversation from the tent. Abram and Sarah were both very old by this time, and Sarah was long past the age of having children. So she laughed silently to herself and said, How could a worn-out woman like me enjoy such pleasure, especially when my master, my husband, is so old? Then the Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh? Why did she say, can an old woman like me have a baby? Is there anything too hard for the Lord? I will return about this time next year, and Sarah will have a son. Sarah was afraid, so she denied it, saying, I didn't laugh. But the Lord said, no, you did laugh. Laughter is my fourth word this morning. Every time when you see laughter or humor or sarcasm or wittiness in the te biblical text, something's about to happen. Something's about to change. When, when we laugh, something happens inside of us. Laughter has the capacity of changing things in us. So let's watch this little video and see what it does. 
attention to what it does to you, your cheeks and your, and your body. Because biologists and neurologists tell, and tell us that when laughter ha happens, it causes these negatively charged uh, impulses that kind of rattle in your brain. And, 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 and what that does when you do that, it sends impulses throughout the body and it's like massaging your internal organs. And it just feels so good to laugh. Well, not only do we get an internal massage, we get health benefits from it as well. These hormones are released and stress is, stress is released from our body. And it's, it's, laughter is known to reduce blood pressure and heart attacks and lets the mind retain information more. There is power in laughter. But when we talk about laughter, I think there's another kind. It's a theological type of laughter. A kind of biblical, spiritual laughter that shows up in the Bible whenever something is funny like this, or sarcastic, or exaggerated. It's something the author, God, has put there to, to, to say, pay attention, something's going to change. So let me give you a few examples from the New Testament. So in the New Testament, in I'll read this first. So this is an author that I read, and this is what he says about laughter. Every time humor occurs in the Bible, every time there's laughter that shows up in the Bible, whether it's something funny or sarcastic, witty or exaggerated, it is put there to demonstrate some powerful truth. Whenever you see laughter or something funny in the Bible, it's put there to recommend or suggest a counter-reality to the reality that seems to be in their story. All right, so watch what Jesus does with this in the New Testament. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is talking about judging people. And condemning one another and looking at one another with contempt. And he's talking to religious folks who, who, who had who have come to believe that it's okay for them. As long as they keep the law, they can look down on those that don't. And that was their wrong assumption. And what does Jesus say? And why worry about a speck in your friend's eye when you have a log in your own? Now that's funny. That's an exaggeration. It's an attempt to get our attention to suggest a counter-reality. None of us should look at judgment on others. Or, or in John's gospel, Nicodemus comes to Jesus in the middle of the night. He says, I love what's going on in your, your kingdom. There's something that intrigues me about you and what you're doing here on earth. But he, he didn't want to admit that publicly. And then he asked Jesus, what do I need to do to become part of it? And what does Jesus say? How, what does Jesus say? You've got to be born again. <laughs> and Nicodemus, what do you mean? How could an old man like me go back in his mother's room and be born again? Sarcastic, funny, humor. And then you got, Nicode or then you got Zacchaeus. He was this wee little man that nobody liked. He was a tax collector. Hated by the people. But he wanted to see Jesus when he came. So he climbs up in this tree because he's too short to see Jesus. 
And Jesus notices him up in the tree. And Jesus calls him by name, Zacchaeus. And with these words, he says, come quick down. I must be a guest at your house today. And I can just imagine Jesus cracking up and saying, Zacchaeus, <laughs> you're going through that extent to get me? I just need to go to your house today. I just want to spend time with you. Jesus flips the script. See what's happening? Whenever there's humor there's in the text, it's there on purpose, and God is up to something. So when Sarah is in the tent in the, in the middle of the day, and the men are out there talking about things, she hears them th- talking about things that they think they know. She hears them say that she's going to have a baby, and what does she laugh? What does she do? <laughs> kind of laughs to herself, just, just real quietly. I think it's one of those inappropriate laughs, like, are you kidding like when someone falls and you just can't help but not laugh. My wife always says, America's Funniest Videos has trained a generation to laugh at other people's expenses. So example, this spring, this past spring, we go over to Stephen Crystal's house. Buck's on his hoverboard. Hoverboards are of the devil if you're over 20 years old. So uh, we're on. I said, Buck, let me try it. Before she can even get the words out of her mouth, I wouldn't do that. I was on the ground and she's laughing at me in my pain. The visitor said to her, you will have a son. And she is like, <laughs> quietly to herself. And the Lord said, Abraham, why did Sarah laugh? Why did she say, can an old woman have a baby? She's like, I didn't laugh. I didn't laugh. God's like, she laughed. No, no, I didn't. I didn't do it. But the Lord said, no, you did laugh. God hears and sees. It, it, it's like this is Abraham and Sarah's faith journey, okay? This is your faith journey. This is the script. And God says, this is what I'm calling you to do. This is what's going to happen. You're going to fall. You're going to mess up. There's going to be things. But I'm going to keep my promise to you. And if it's like the baby in that video, she laughs when she hears the paper being ripped. When, when, when Sarah heard these uh, uh, assumptions that she had in her mind starting to get ripped up right in front of her mind, right in front of her eyes, she laughs. So what would it look like for you and for me to laugh at places in our lives where we have assumptions, where we think life is taking us one way, and God's like, no. The most powerful part of this text is the laughing, where we used to see God and say, God, yeah, you told me this, but I don't see it happening. God, you can't use me. God, you can't see me. God, you can't call me. God, you can't empower me. God, I've got too much sin in my life. There's no way. And that, that God has forgotten about you. And the text is telling us to laugh at those places in our lives. And allow God to tear up the assumptions and start believing the promises of God. Because that leads us to the next and the most poor, important point of this, of this sermon. And what, Jesus, what God says next. Nothing is impossible with God. Verse 14.8. God responds. The Lord does. Is there anything impossible or too hard for God? My favorite translation says, is anything impossible for God? Anything that's the question we need to end on today. Whatever it is that's causing you anxiety, whatever that you can't figure out, 
Whatever God has called you to and asked you to wait on. Whatever has put you on the edge of hopelessness and fear and despair and you're running out of all your own resources, God says, is there anything impossible for me? He wants to rip up that script and he wants to flip it. And he wants you to take his promises and say, this is what I need to believe as I walk through this. There is a difference when you walk by faith. We just need to choose it over and over and over. But not everything is possible. Not everything is possible. But everything God promises about you and what he says is possible. That's the caveat here. Not everything you, pro- you wish for will happen. But everything God promises about you and what God's word says will happen. You can have a full life. You can be free. You can be reconciled. You can have in- integrity. When you're inside your hidden life, it can be con- consistent with your outer life. You can be born again. You can have assurance of eternal life. You can walk in the way of faith because the word of God says nothing is impossible with God. We just got to let God tear up those assumptions and start believing the truth about God and his word. God's called you on a pilgrimage of faith. Will you walk by faith with complete confidence that God is willing and able and he hears you And he sees you, and he's telling you which direction to walk. You're going to be like Ishmael, or you're going to be like Isaac. Choose to trust God. Always. Always. Let's pray. So, Father, there's so much here in this text. Life is hard. We saw that. We find Hagar sitting underneath the tree. We find Abram sitting underneath his tent with this noonday demon hanging on him. But God, you want to rip up the script. You want to flip it. And you want our lives to change. (laughs) You want us to trust you completely when things are hopeless because nothing is impossible with you. And I just want to say thank you. Give me the faith like Hagar. Give me the faith like Abraham and especially Sarai here as we learn to watch how they learn to walk in faith. God, you are a powerful, powerful, powerful God, and nothing is impossible with you. In your precious name, amen.